This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hello and welcome to Saver Production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about Victory Gardens. Yes, which was a listener suggestion from Allison. So thank you, Allison. Mm -hmm. And this is another one that I'm not sure I would have ever thought to do an episode on myself. So you listeners are always sending us the best suggestions. Oh, absolutely. And thank you. Yes. Um, And as it turns out, we are sort of in a time of Victory Gardens or in people who weren't previously gardening, gardening, right? <laughs> trying to get food out of that. Yeah, um, yeah. I I know a lot of people who um who who started up during quarantine a little bit of a of a backyard garden or a, or a little bit of a of a potted garden somewhere in or around their home. Here here at the house, we usually have a bunch of plants doing things. Um, some <laughs> of them grow food, not reliably. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that. We have a lot to do with it as much as, like, we pay them just enough attention to not kill them, and sometimes mm. we get produce out of it. Yeah. I was I was always impressed when I would see whatever random things in my mind you were growing. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite a collection. Um, between myself and my roommate, there's the probably the silliest thing we've got are these two avocado trees— um, <laughs> that want to live in Florida in the ground. And instead, we have them in these increasingly large pots. Um, and one of them is 
I'm going to say, I'm going to, I just looked up as though I could see the top of it from my desk. I cannot, <laughs> dear listener. Um, but it's maybe like nine feet tall now. Wow. And this is a thing that we have to bring into the house for winter. Wow. <laughs> so that's cool. Wow. Yeah. That, that seems like a, a skit, a storyline on a sitcom that I want to see. <laughs> And every year, like, if it's a long-running sitcom, mm-hmm. it gets bigger and bigger uh-huh. and more and more difficult. Yeah, that's, that, yes, that is precisely <laughs> how that works. Uh, every every year, we're like, oh, man, I guess it's time to do this silly thing again. <laughs> do you put it off? Is it like, We kind of oh, do, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I always tell Heidi, I'm like, I'm like, dude, anytime you want to do this, let me know. We we can do it. Mm. And she's like, no, not today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it in me today. <laughs> do you get avocado from it? I have a oh, lot of questions no. about this avocado. Oh, no. Zero <laughs> avocados have ever come out. Zero blooms have ever, have ever come off of this plant. <laughs> I love it so Yeah. Much. That's why every year I'm like, oh, man, this is okay. <laughs> Oh, no. That's so great. If I were eating avocado, I would be like, yeah, we've got this avocado tree. It's the best thing in my life. Of course we move it in and out of the house. <laughs> you know, maybe any year now, Lauren. Any year now. <laughs> sure. Sure. That's a that's that's lovely, Annie. I like your yeah. I like your moxie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like to have some optimism about possible avocado. That's exciting. <laughs> Um, which is funny because I actually have a really bad track record of growing things. Um, I was telling Laura and I started with 14, 14 herbs and now I'm down to two and I am accidentally growing cucumber, which is also a very silly thing. Uh, and I have like since quarantine, I've definitely been more, I wonder if I can grow this. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I did grow scallions for a while, but the smell was quite strong because I live in a very small. Oh, my yeah. kitchen is very small. Yeah. Um. So no more, no more of that. But it was really exciting. It was exciting to be like, aha, look at it go! I can use this in food. It, it's yeah. and yeah, it, it's a it's a very it's a very nice feeling growing stuff. Um, it is. Uh, <laughs> it's it's fun to do. I enjoy it. And I guess this this brings us to our question. Yes. Victory Gardens. What are they? Well, uh, a victory garden is a term for a garden that's kept up by someone at home or in their community who probably does not work in agriculture for the purpose of growing edible plants with the idea of the produce being a supplemental food source. Um, and and these serve a few purposes. Um, better food security, um, better nutritional health, but also better mental health. Um, you know, the idea is that it, it, it gets you outside, maybe. It, it gives you something to do with your hands. It gives you these palpable results. Um, and, uh, and the term came, the, the, the reason that they are called victory gardens is that they came from the First and Second World Wars. Um, and uh, we will get deeply into that in our history section here. This is a really history-heavy one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Laura and I were discussing how that, it's just such a great piece of 
propaganda, essentially, but it's yeah. fun. It's like it makes you feel like, yes, Victor <laughs> is mine. <laughs> right? And like, what a great term for them. Whoever whoever did really come up with that and just had their finger on something beautiful. Because, right, yes. if you call it, what else... What else do you call it? Like, like it's because if, if you grow a if you grow a cucumber, Annie, yes. that will be a victory cucumber. Oh, I it will be. And, then, and I will feel very victorious, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> um, I have a friend who's really into gardening. And uh I showed her a picture because I was so thrilled that I'm like, oh, wow, I'm accidentally growing cucumber. <laughs> and I sent her a picture, and she sent back this huge, like I really appreciated it, but she was mad at me because she's like, that's not the right container. That's not the right size. I, I don't like that you're not taking care of your plants. As if I was like, you know, not being mean to a pet or something. <laughs> she was very defensive of my cucumber plant. Um, <laughs> made me feel very chastised. Oh, uh, well, I can, I can, we can give you a few tips um, to, to help it. I mean, it sounds like it's doing just okay on its own, um, but uh, but if you if you haven't already, uh, it, it, it'd help if you cut a few drainage holes in the bottom of the container mm-hmm. and then set it on you know like a plate or something so that when you water it, uh, the some of the water can escape through the bottom um, and and out into the yes. world, but not all over your stuff um, yeah, because yeah you, you always want you always want drainage in those kind of things. Yes, yes. Um, that's very same friends, mom grows peppers, but she doesn't like spicy food. So I've been getting like bags of peppers and it's been about my favorite thing. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Are you still just eating raw hot peppers just for funsies? Okay. Yes. All right. So many. Like probably every day. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Hey, they're a good source of vitamins, uh, fiber. You know what I find really interesting though? And I want to come back to this in a future episode. I feel like my spice tolerance hasn't improved. Really? Which I would have thought it had. Like I have a pretty good tolerance, but I still get, you know, I'll get sweaty and it burns. Yeah. That hasn't really gone away. And I've been eating straight peppers for months. (laughs) Wow. That's, Maybe it takes longer. That's fat. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know about the, I mean, or maybe it just means that like, you know your your nervous system is working the way that it's supposed to. Maybe maybe we don't really. You think it's all a gain big lie? gain a gain a new tolerance for that kind of um, sensory input. I don't know. Interesting. Hmm. Because my my little brother, I think I've talked about it before. Literally, like trains himself to eat <laughs> hotter stuff. Um, Does it work yeah. for? Do you think it's psychological though? Like maybe you are oh. pay, maybe you are more in, uh, in tune with like your your physiological side mm. and he's just and he's still experiencing the heat but just going like oh yeah no this is great <laughs> this is going so well i'm more manly now <laughs> i should ask him i should do like a little follow-up interview because <laughs> i thought i was just like well my little brother's doing it why isn't it working for me huh all right future episode mm-hmm. getting a bit derailed here what about the nutrition of a victory garden? I, yeah. Well, well, uh, okay. Well, it depends on what you plant in your garden, I guess. But also mm. don't eat a whole garden. Like, there's there's stuff in there that isn't edible, <laughs> really. Like, you shouldn't... There's a lot of plant stems you don't want to eat. Don't, like, mm. don't eat tomato leaves. Those are toxic. Uh, don't oh, yeah. eat Don't eat your, like, garden shears. That wouldn't be a good time. Ooh. I don't really recommend soil. 
<laughs> Lauren Vogelbaum breaking it down. <laughs> but who among us with siblings has not eaten dirt on a dare? <laughs> Just once. Uh, we, we have some numbers kind of scattered throughout this one, but uh, we do have something at the top. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to put in that there are a number of things named after Victory Gardens. Uh, there's a theater in Chicago called Victory Gardens Theater. There's a punk band in Long Island. Um, a, a defunct <laughs> confectionery shop in Brooklyn. Handful of novels. I mean, it's a good name. It is. (laughs) As said before, and we will tell you how it got this name, Mm -hmm. perhaps. (laughs) But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Okay, so, uh, of course, perhaps obviously, uh, the the idea of people who are not farmers by trade growing small edible gardens at home to supplement the food that they buy from people who are farmers, um, that's not new. That's not a new shiny idea. Um, 
uh, Germany, for example, started a uh, a movement of uh, gardens for the poor in the 1860s, um, the burgeoning industrialization and urbanization without the proper like agricultural infrastructure had created this this lack of access to good fresh food in these growing urban areas. Um, these are still around today. They're sometimes called um, Schrebergarten for physician Moritz Schreber, who campaigned for them, um, also sometimes called allotment gardens. Some of the first widespread urban gardening for sustenance movements in the United States, though, happened starting in 1893 with the coming of the Panic, um, which was this massive economic depression. Um, Lots of folks, especially in big cities, were unemployed and were hungry. Over in Detroit, then-Mayor Hazen Pingree, I didn't look it up, but that's a great name. Uh, Hazen Pingree <laughs> started what he called a potato patch program, wherein the city allocated uh, vacant land to families for growing food. Within three years, 1,700 families had covered 400 acres with food gardens. Um, it helped that a lot of the unemployed were recent immigrants um, who had been farmers um, over in Central Europe. Other cities picked up the Detroit plan, too, like New York City and uh, Philly. There were also school gardens that sprung up during the Progressive Era. That's 1890 through 1920, though, though yeah, they, they really got started after the turn of the 20th century. And these were these, uh, these gardening programs for urban kids. And these gardens were thought to build strong moral character, keep kids out of trouble, improve health, make areas more beautiful, and also Americanize immigrants. Hmm. In the U.S., when we say victory garden, what we typically are referring to, what we're thinking of, um, are public and private gardens planted during World War I and World War II. Some historians specifically pinpoint one businessman in particular, Charles Lanthrop Pack. He reportedly got the idea before the war, suggesting it as a way to lessen stress on American foodways after riots broke out in New York due to food shortages. Uh, Yeah, 1916 was a a year of crop shortages around the world. And um, and so a, a a lot of folks, again, especially in urban areas, were hurting. Once World War I was underway, uh, PAC organized the National War Garden Commission, though they were not officially affiliated with the U.S. government, and the government was not a fan of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and PAC believed that media messaging was the way to accomplish more widespread gardening. He allegedly came up with the idea to call these gardens Victory Gardens himself. Um, uh, Yeah, and that was as the war was coming to an end. Uh, they were called War Gardens or Liberty Gardens through, through the end of World War I. A war garden sounds so much more intense. War garden. Garden of war. (laughs) Tomato of blight. That's like one of those, uh, like, I'm imagining to how neighbors, opposing neighbors, (laughs) comparing their gardens to each other, throwing some shade. Like, what you got growing over there? Or either, I know it's popular in some games to garden competitively. (laughs) Oh, sure. Yeah. War Garden would really ump the ante if we called it that. (laughs) So these victory gardens went up everywhere. Churches, parks, playgrounds, backyards. As the name suggests, they served not only as a way to relieve stress, uh, put on the food supply, but as a way to rev up patriotism and support for the war effort. It was a way to make people at home feel like they were doing their part. Uh, Soldiers of the soil was a popular (laughs) phrase. Mm -hmm. And people, they really got into it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
President Woodrow Wilson appointed Herbert Hoover to head the U.S. Food Administration during World War I, and this position made him responsible for exporting, importing, purchasing, and storing food. So uh, in 1917, just after the U.S. entered World War I, Hoover helped launch the U.S. School Garden Army, um, a, a national program that lauded a garden for every child and every child in a garden. Um, and uh, and this is where that soldiers of the soil thing came in. This was marketing to youth, encouraging them to grow their munitions plants, their oh my gosh, their gardens <laughs> everywhere, producing as much ammunition or food as possible. Like garden furrows were called trenches. It was a whole thing, um, and wow. uh, and it was successful. There were uh, thirteen hundred school gardens just in Los Angeles. Wow. Uh, urban and suburban communities alike got into it. Um, some 2.5 million kids were involved, all told. Dang. <laughs> and it wasn't just kids. Um, some 3 million families planted food gardens in 1917, and that number rose to over 5 million by 1918. Um, there, there was just a lot of, of propaganda. Um, uh, Turn your reserves into preserves. Uh, <laughs> Every kitchen a canning factory, and back up the cannon with the canner. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I got an LOL. <laughs> uh, home, home production of food was worth some um, $525 million, though, so all of that good good pun writing was was <laughs> come, coming in handy. Well, it is so funny to me that, and I'm, I'm not immune to it at all, uh, you get a good name, you turn it into like a game for kids where it's trenches and you get your munitions plants. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it's it's amazing to me how effective that is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and and on everyone, not just children, just humans. Yes. Yeah. Or like, oh, munitions plants, that's clever. Get me the tomato <laughs> yeah. seed. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been in there. Um, (laughs) And through strong messaging to the American people around consuming less while producing more, rations were pretty much avoided during World War I. Um, This whole consume less idea was nicknamed Hooverizing and was promoted by entities like the National War Garden Commission. Uh, said commission tried to keep the spirit alive post-war. Uh, one pamphlet from 1919 said, uh, Prevention of widespread starvation is the peacetime obligation of the United States. The war garden of 1918 must become the victory garden of 1919. Um, but uh, but farm production um, and the economy were were pretty good for a couple years after. Um, and so, so uh, home gardening like this dropped off a bit. Right. Um, but then World War II was a different story because America was recovering from the Great Depression. Soon after the U.S. joined World War II, the U.S. Agriculture Secretary started espousing the benefits of victory gardens, although there was some federal resistance to it at first, especially mm-hmm. in the early days. Like, yeah. Um, the thought of being novice gardeners would waste valuable resources. However, people were so into it. They remembered World War I. They remembered this call to participate, and the interest was just there. People really, really wanted to do their part or feel like they were doing their part. And Victory Gardens were a part of that. And, you know, as we said, the messaging was so, it worked so well, Mm -hmm. people remembered it. So Mm -hmm. even if you have government officials being like, actually, don't do that. 
You're like, yeah, but I remember World War One. <laughs> I had my trenches and my munitions plants. I want to help out. <laughs> and officials did understand the morale-boosting nature of these gardens. And there were multiple pamphlets, guides, and articles put out for all, like, degrees of gardeners, along with those patriotic propaganda posters we're all familiar with. They, they look the same. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, y'all, I love a propaganda poster. Um, and some of these are, are just, just great. Um, Dig for victory now. Grow vitamins at your kitchen door. Food is the mightiest weapon of them all. Sow the oh. seeds of victory. <laughs> I love this. I feel like I need to start saying these things while I'm cooking or growing things. <laughs> then my neighbors right? will be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> they were worried before. They'd be really worried then. Oh, uh, um, yeah. And and it got it got serious. There was this one um instructional film or educational film, I guess, um, that was that was all like no work, no turnips, no tanks, no flying fortress, no victory. <laughs> No turnips, no tanks. <laughs> yep. No turnips, no tanks. I think that just sounds like a fun thing to say. I think like that's a, a phrase saying. that needs to come back. Yeah. 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 I think so too. I think <laughs> we're, we're, we haven't designed a new t shirt in a long time. Yeah. That's right. I like it, Lauren. It's time. <laughs> <laughs> So in 1941, um, the War Food Administration here in the U.S. Uh, created the National Victory Garden Program. And this got big agriculture companies involved as, as sponsors and executives on this, on this board. Um, uh, they, they'd give away seeds and in return get marketing exposure and a tax break. Um, mm. And so it became a very, very corporate thing. Um, and there was e even a lot of their their marketing materials at the time because the U.S. became the, the primary seed producer for most of the Western world at this time because, you know, we weren't, we didn't have um, the same kind of, of, of military involvement on our soil or in our skies as, um, as Europe did. And so, uh, so yeah, we, we were producing seeds for a lot of places. Um, and yeah, there was just all of this really heavy-handed patriotic imagery and thought process put into it. But another organization that came about during this time was um, the Women's Land Army. Um, and this was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was an organization for women who were um, uh, working both in victory gardens and also those who were replacing some of the three million male farm workers who had joined the, the war effort, either in industry or overseas. Yeah, and that was something I noticed when I was looking at some of these drives and organizations as they got really involved, they would contact like women's magazines. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, women's organizations, like trying to really get women involved in all of this. Mm -hmm. Neighborhood committees formed around these gardens, dedicating to helping along newcomers and providing supplies where possible, sharing tools, sharing food. The Departments of Agriculture and War Production produced their own Victory Garden fertilizer. <laughs> um, excess produce was encouraged to be canned for the winter. And these gardens were advertised as this fun, important, patriotic thing. Um, not everyone was encouraged to plant a Victory Garden, however. People living in cities were not pushed to grow gardens for fear of wasting seeds due to lack of light and soil health. Again, they were almost kind of like told not to do it, but people really wanted to do mm -hmm. it. Yeah. A year into the war, the government introduced the food rationing program. As a complement to this, officials urged Americans to plant victory gardens while farmers grew the essentials. And reminder, 
Many farmers were drafted to fight in the war, and many Japanese Americans were imprisoned in internment camps, uh, and that removed farmers from the workforce as well. Um, some some of the people who were interred in those camps also grew gardens there, though. Yeah, um, and the food wasn't just for America either. Uh, sometimes it went to American allies, and the need was only exacerbated by the targeting of boats carrying food. In 1942, sales of seeds in the U.S. rose 300%. Oof. Oof. Yeah. And over 500 gardens sprung up in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park alone during World War II. Yeah. Uh, cities would hold these uh, these gardening fairs to, to draw citizens in with uh, entertainment and advice. Um, some private landowners donated land, too. Eleanor Roosevelt turned over uh, part of the front White House lawn into this youth-led Victory Garden. Mm-hmm. Um, other well-known sites like Fenway had their own Victory Gardens. Fenway's is still operating today on the same site, attended uh, by the Boston community. Yeah, and I think I think the Smithsonian has one too. Yeah, oh, a lot yeah. of these are still around. Uh huh. According to one source, at one point, these gardens were responsible for up to 41% of the vegetable produce for civilians in America, courtesy of 18 to 20 million families. Historians estimate that these gardens produced somewhere between 9 to 10 million tons of vegetables. That's some, like, 15 billion pounds. That is a lot. Yeah. And these vegetables didn't just go to private residences. They also went to businesses and school lunches. Kale, beets, lettuce, peas, Swiss chard, kohlrabi, turnips, carrots, cabbage were just a few of the things people were growing. And Victory Gardens were responsible for bringing some of these foods to American tables on a more widespread basis. Some people raised chickens as well. Um, In 1943, to aid in canning, American families bought 315,000 pressure cookers, um, up from just 66,000 the year before. (laughs) Dang. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of canning, I guess, beginning in March 1943, the U.S. started rationing canned fruits and vegetables, primarily to ration the tin. Yeah, yeah, like commercially produced canned uh, fruit and veg, yeah. Yes. At the time, Japan controlled 70% of the world's tin. Because of these gardens, many Americans actually ate better during the war than they had before. Over 200 items were rationed, and these rationed items were assigned a point value that could vary based on supply and demand. The grocer had to update point value month to month. And then War Ration Book 2 came out around the same time, and it came with monthly stamps for 48 points of processed food. And the points had to be exact, and the rationing calendars were published in newspapers. So this all amounted to 33 pounds of processed food per year, which was 13 pounds less than pre-war levels. The stamps had to be ripped off in front of the grocer to discourage fraud. Uh, The system was improved upon over the years, and by 1944, shoppers received plastic tokens for change. So you didn't have to have exact Mm, uh, mm -hmm, amount mm -hmm. anymore. A survey conducted that same year found that 75% of American housewives canned. They were canning. Wow. When the war ended, the gardens largely went away as well, and some foods that had been very easy to grow, like kale, sort of got a bad rap after this. Yeah, we yeah. talked about that in our kale episode. Uh-huh. Um, um, you know, and and keep in mind here, you know, it, it was seen as unnecessary after the war, and 
Also, you had this this big boom in in this in this new science food. Um, uh, it, it was yeah. considered very posh um, to use all of these um, helper products that were pre-processed and packaged. Um, and also, like, keep in mind, like, gardening is hard. Um, it's a lot of work. Um, mm-hmm. The results can be discouraging, especially if you don't really know what you're doing. Um, in 1943, the New York Times ran a story with the headline, The First Year is the Hardest. Um, <laughs> it was trying to, like, reassure readers that they could make their victory gardens happen. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, inflection mine, but I... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that feels right. Yeah, um, and uh, and so we've been talking a lot about the United States here, but of course, the U.S. was not the only country where home gardening picked up, um, especially during the World Wars. the The British Ministry of Agriculture launched their Dig for Victory campaign in 1939. Um, five million family produce gardens popped up over the next three years alone. Um, apparently, pigs were also kept in some uh, United Kingdom gardens. Um, and yeah, like like we were talking about earlier, um, the food supply was never really in trouble in the United States during World War II, the way that it was in the UK, France, Germany, and and other parts of Europe um, and the world that that saw conflict on and over their soil. Um, you know, a tactic in war is to starve the enemy out, um, and so the the food supply chain was disrupted on purpose in a lot of these places. Um, like there were some two hundred thousand produce gardens in Berlin alone. Canada got in on uh, creating produce to send to France during the wars um, on their professional farms, and the government hosted backyard gardening programs there as well. Australia also had a Dig for Victory campaign that started in 1942 as um, food and labor shortages affected their food supply. Um, Some folks sold excess to raise war funds. Uh, Groups got together to send produce to the fronts. Like I, I read about one women's group getting... I think, 50 tons of onions together to, wow. to send to the front. And uh, uh, Germany, kind of, for example, never got out of the habit of, of these kinds of, um, of, of family or community urban farms the way that we did here. There are apparently still over a million food gardens uh, throughout the country there today. Wow. I love that. I mean, there's kind of a, it's a tinge of sadness behind it because of the history. And I do feel like if you, it's it kind of reminds me of um, relatives I have from the Depression who still yeah. have habits from that of like yeah. stockpiling food and all of this stuff. Um, so it is a little sad, but I, I'm happy that they're still going. Yeah, um, and you know, and I don't think that people would be doing it if it didn't bring them um, uh, joy and satisfaction. Um, right, yeah. I, I grew up... Um, on my mother's side of the family, uh, my my grandparents always had a food garden. To be fair, they they came from from farming families, so I think for them it would have felt weird to not be growing some of their own food. But um, but definitely, uh, I would say that the 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 World War uh, affected affected that for them, and so. I uh, so so I grew up with that. That's part of why I have so many plants and pots all over the place mm-hmm. doing weird stuff. Because um, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I'm just like, oh no, it's just what you do. You 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 grow you grow some food. Um, and uh, yeah, I I enjoy it. I like a plant. A plant is nice. <laughs> well, I'm here here during quarantine. A lot of people have grown very attached <laughs> to their plants. So. <laughs> Uh, um, and yeah, so even though even though it's not uh, a big movement in the U.S., even even right now, like there's not the same kind of um, I guess public pressure 
or support for home gardening that there was during the World Wars. But um, but there have been a few smaller revivals here in the U.S., here and there. Um, there was a resurgence, for example, during the economic downturn of the 1970s, um, which, which started locally in cities affected by, by white flight to the suburbs. You know, there was a lot of urban disinvestment, um, a lot of vacant lots, a lot of um, the remaining citizens, mostly Black people and recent immigrants, were just left with these decreasing options. And so some organizations got together to turn those dead zones into gardens. Um, In 77, the USDA took the movement national when it debuted the Urban Gardening Program. Um, It sent sort of agricultural extension services that that usually go to like professional farmers out to these urban farmers. Um, And within a decade or so, they were working with some 200,000 urban gardeners across the country producing like $22.8 million worth of produce on a budget of like $3.5 million. Um, (laughs) But the, the program was shut down in 1994. Um, the, the practice, though, has survived um, in, in some cities. And we should really do a separate episode on urban gardening in general. It's a, it's a deep and fascinating um, subject. Uh, yeah. And there was another small resurgence starting in uh, about 2008, um, you know, after the economic bubble burst. Uh, the, um, the Burpee Seed Company reported a 40% spike in seed sales in 2008 alone. Um, And uh, Michelle Obama reinstated a food garden on the White House lawn. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, uh, now now we've got some of these COVID quarantine gardens. Um, As early as... (laughs) As early as March 25th, um, papers like the New York Times were reporting on this huge surge in seed sales and, like, citizen interest in food gardens. Um, I did want to put in here a, a parallel. It's it's easy to forget, I think, that um, that the same year that those World War I uh, war gardens or um, or liberty gardens were first flourishing was 1918, which was the year of the influenza pandemic. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, just just taking taking a little bit of control back, even if it's just a just a single potted mm-hmm. plant. Um, there has been a push to avoid calling these modern gardens victory gardens to avoid like the connection to military operations. Um, I don't know, provision gardening is a term. That I've seen, but it's just not as it's not as fun. I kind of like quarantine garden because it sounds <laughs> a little like funny but menacing. I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's my quarantine garden. Don't go over there. <laughs> <laughs> that corn is in quarantine. It knows why. <laughs> Well, thank God. You know, any listeners, if you got any terms, <laughs> I'm a big fan of, yeah, because if we can't use Victory Gardens, we got to come up with something just as good because the oh, name is key. Yeah, we do. We do. Although, yeah, lots of people are getting into it. I, I didn't find a statistic for here in the United States, but um, but as of late May, um, the UK reported that 42% of Britons were gardening during lockdown. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely heard a lot of my friends uh, getting into it. Probably not super intensely. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, we definitely, listeners, have reached out to us and let us know what they're growing, which please continue to do that. Mm, we love it. Mm-hmm, yeah, send pictures. Yeah. Oh, yes, please. Um, so I guess that's about what we have to say on Victory Gardens today. It is. Uh, we do have some listener mail from people who have already sent things in. Um, but first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. 
Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with Listener Mail. (sighs) Victory. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a whole like flexing of the bicep. Oh yeah, that was a, that was a good one. <laughs> Susan wrote, "I listened to your Food of Hannibal episode and your new episode about carob, in which Annie said watching Hannibal might have influenced her carob seed cannibalistic nightmare." <laughs> oh, that sounds terrible when, I, when you put it that way, but it's accurate. Um, she continues, I firmly believe that Hannibal might have caused this. I, hmm. too, have been the victim of Hannibal-related nightmares. Oh, no. 
several years ago, right after getting Amazon Prime, I got the flu. And while feeling miserable, thought that the best way to pass the time was to binge watch Hannibal. Oh. Probably not the smartest of plans since I ended up having terror fever dreams featuring Hannibal and Will. <laughs> The next time I went to the doctor for a checkup, I surprised my doctor had been pushing flu shots on me for years by demanding I be vaccinated for everything. Ebola, hepatitis, pellagra, flu, athlete's foot, whatever he had available. <laughs> now when people tell me they are anti-vaccine, I start my spiel with, call me the next time you're sick, I have a show for you to watch. <laughs> hey, you wow. turn your Hannibal nightmares uh, into good. <laughs> into meaningful action. That's great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I do love that you're like, you know, I feel sick. Let's watch this show. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I did the same thing, so I can't can't say anything. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, this is why I just watch Disney movies when I'm I'm like, oh man, this is a great time to catch up on animated feature films that I've not seen yet. <laughs> and right then you watch it. Inside Out and you're sobbing and you can't breathe through your nose. And that's just just me, maybe. <laughs> I I have still not watched Inside Out because I know that I'm just going to cry through the entire movie. I know that it's a good film and that it contains it really a very good uh, psychological representation of the inner workings mm-hmm. of the mind. Um, I get that. <laughs> I don't want to watch it. I don't want to watch it right now. I don't want to make myself real sad. It was, it was really funny when I saw that movie. It feels offensive. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I saw it in theaters by myself. Oh, I, like, gosh. By myself. And, like, in the end, uh, when the sad thing, like, the whole movie is, like, tinged with sadness, but it was no, like, big moment. It mm-hmm. happens. Every adult in that damn theater was crying. None of the kids were. <laughs> the kids were like, what? And we're all like, oh, no. oh. <laughs> Childhood innocence is so fleeting. I love that. Oh. I love that. I love, I, I cry at the end of every Toy Story movie as well. Oh, um, um, yeah. I do. I yeah. just, I mean, I cry a lot. Like that's, I, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, no, me too. I like cried when like, when like Arya and, 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 and her wolf had their moment. Like I was like, no. <laughs> oh. I'm on the same page. <laughs> anyway. Um. <laughs> I won't make you watch Inside Out for now. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, uh, if you guys have suggestions for what won't, Mess up your your being sick and binge watching stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what is so Inside Out is out. Hannibal's out. That leaves a lot of room, though. That does. That's a whole world of media. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> gosh. <laughs> anyway, um, Vincenzo wrote, I just finished listening to your Apple podcast. It was great. I meant to send this article over after your interview with Dan Pashman. And given my current slow podcast churn, I'm not sure I would have gotten it there in time for your Apple episode anyway. A few years ago, I took a course on plant intellectual property, and one of the articles we read was about apples as brands in particular, and the techniques breeders use to control quality. And let's be honest, price, since even in academia, a professor will get royalties from IP they generate, and these authors are the breeders of Honeycrisp, which has made a lot for them, the department and the university. Wow. That blows my mind. Huh. I just had never... It's one of those things when when you pointed out, like, it is odd that there's so many different types of apples compared yeah. to all of the fruit. But then I had never heard of this. Like, when we talked about in the episode, I'd never heard of this whole thing. And just the fact that you're getting royalties from Honeycrisp. Yeah. I, I guess I, like, low-key knew that that it had to, that that, had, that that system had to be in place. 
because I knew that these were like brand names, but I I, I hadn't thought about yeah this whole chain of of uh, of revenue that ap- apples as brands, man. Apples as brands o- outside of the technology sector. Weird. <laughs> Well, they knew what was up. They knew apples that were on something. So um, thanks to both of those listeners for writing in. Mm-hmm. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All three places. Our handle is at saverpod. And we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts my iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit tomboyx.com.